I've entitled this this message, let's see, uh, Following Christ into the Lifelong Battle for Truth, Part 2. So last time was Part 1, uh, and... And, and last time, what, what we looked at was we looked at, we're, we're in this series on disciple makers. And as a disciple of Christ, we seek to make disciples of Christ. But last time we looked at the importance of contending for God's truth. And this means standing upon God's truth, not just in what we claim to believe, but how we seek to live among Christians and non-Christians. So contending is not just like fighting for the truth, but how you live, how you think, how you make decisions is what we talked about. And last time we looked at a simple command from Jude, verses 3 to 4, which is Jude in the New Testament commanding us to contend for the faith, right? For what we really believe, especially in a world that is compromising of truth. So this lifelong battle for truth, it's, it's all-encompassing. It's mental, it's emotional, it's physical, right? It's not just what you do, it's what you feel. It's not just what you feel, it's how you think. And all of that uh, impacts your decision and your living. Um, and so following Christ is this daily fight. There's this grind. It's not going to be this, this warm, fuzzy retreat feeling all the time. At the same time, it's not always going to be this, this down and dry season where you feel far from God. But, but we, as believers, if you've been a believer for any amount of time, you know that you'll have those seasons. There's seasons where you feel like on fire for Jesus, and there'll be other, few, other seasons in life where you're like, man, I just feel far from God even though I'm praying and, I, and I'm wondering what's going on in life. Other times you'll feel lonely even though there's community surrounding you. Um, other times you'll have community surrounding you and you'll just be, I just want to be alone, you know, and I just want to get away for a while. Right. Uh, and so that's the Christian life, but God has given us his word. He's given us the Holy spirit and he's given us people to surround us with, to help us in what we call, uh, sanctification. That's the process of becoming like Christ, the process of becoming holy. And in order for you to do that, there's our part of contending and we do that in the power of the spirit. But last time it was a command to contend for the truth. And on the PowerPoint, you can see that uh, what Jude says, he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing, so he's arguing for, he's exhorting them to, to contend. And that's the appeal, that's the exhortation. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. And so last time we explained what the faith that was passed down to the saints was. And so Jesus affirmed the Old Testament and then he taught, right? So, so all of his miracles, all of his teachings, and then he taught his disciples. And many of his disciples w made up uh, that group that penned the majority of the New Testament letters and, 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 the, and the New Testament books. And together you have the Old and New Testament, the Holy Scriptures, 66 books. But even before that... The Bible was finalized and canonized. You know, oral tradition was already passing down the faith. And so whatever Jesus taught and passed down to his apostles, his apostles passed down to, you know, the early church fathers and so forth. And then eventually they canonized the scriptures. And that becomes the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints and then passed down from generation to generation. And over the years, people have had to contend and fight and defend that faith. Okay, so tonight we're going to look at how to contend. Last time we saw the command to contend, and we're going to look at how to contend. So if you have God's Word, I invite you to take, take your Bibles or your electronic device and pull up your Bible app. 
Uh, I recommend the ESV Bible app, of course, but they, I'm not a poster boy for ESV. Um, I, I say that because I know Southern Baptist, there's, there's a new translation that came out. I, I do have that translation. It's called the CSB, Christian Standard Bible. It's pretty good. But if you ask me for my opinion, I still prefer the English Standard Version. This is personal opinion. Both versions are good. Just Some of you have asked me, or some people have come back from a conference and said, hey, should we use this? Yes, you should, uh, but don't throw away your ESV. Okay. So, point number one tonight is contend for truth by watching out, worshiping, waiting, and witnessing for Christ. Those are actually the points but I just put it in one Roman numeral, and that's actually the big idea. So when we come back to big idea, it is deductive tonight, meaning it's being stated up front. That's what the passage is saying. It's telling us, here's how you contend for the truth. You watch out. It's a process of watching out. You're worshiping. You're waiting for Christ, and you're witnessing for Christ. Let me read that to you. First, in verses 17 and 19, Jude writes this, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, they said to you the last time there were scoffers following their own godly passions, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. So you need to watch out for them. Right? That's how you summarize that those few verses. But now in, in verses 20 to 23, it says, But you, beloved, here's what you should do. So not only are you watching out, but here's what you need to do. You, beloved... Contend for the faith by building yourselves up in your most holy faith. So strengthen that faith. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. So others show mercy with fear. Hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Alright, so... Let's break that down now, uh, phrase by phrase. Right? So the first is watching out. All right? So watching out, let me go back a slide, verses 17 and 19. Jude, once again, he warns his readers, watch out for the false teachers. And unbelief, watch out for unbelief. Watch out for any pollution or corruption of whatever teachings were passed down from Jesus to his apostles. And what he refers to, he says, in the last times, right? Watch out in the last times. And, and, and you must remember, beloved, the predictions that in the last time there will be scoffers. When's the last time? The last time, it, it's a long period of time. The, the language for this is epoch. Right? An, an epoch of time is just this long period of time. You can call it the church age if you want to. Write that down. And it's the time between Jesus' ascension. So in Acts Chapter 1, when he ascends back into heaven. So it's it's that time. That's the starting point. And the end point is when he returns. And he hasn't returned yet. right? So the time in between, we refer to that. And the New Testament authors have referred to that, to that period as the last days, the last time. And so it's a long period of time. right? And, and, and because we don't know how long... It will take before Christ returns. Because scriptures say no one knows the time or date except for God. When Jesus returns, they just use language that's very general. Like time or days. Right? We are in those final days, the last days now. And notice that we must watch out. So it's, it's commanding us almost watch out. Be alert. Be discerning. Because self-seeking false teachers will not only enter the church. And it tells you what their aim is. Look at verse 19. It says, 
they will cause division. Now, if you've ever uh, played a video game or <clears throat> gone to war, <laughs> and I know there's a, a Roberts back there, you know, um, as well as John, and, and, we, and, and we have military, and I love military, I appreciate them, especially 4th of July, you know, I, I remember the sacrifice that soldiers make for our country. I mean, I, I think any general, uh, when you see it in movies, what do you do? How do you conquer? You divide. So if you can cause the enemy to fight against themselves, then that's half the battle. Right, And so it's the same idea. Well, that's Satan's scheme. That's his tactic. In fact, it's a great tactic. How do you divide the church, cause the members to fight against themselves? And remember in 1 Corinthians, the illustration for the unity of the church is what? The unity of the body. Right, And Paul uses the human body as an illustration. So uh, imagine if your internal organs started fighting against it, the rest of the members of your body. Imagine if your fist started fighting against your face or but your internal organs right what if you're you know you start fighting internally against yourself and your heart doesn't want to work and and your blood's not flowing and one part saying let's go and another, what happens you're going to die and it's the same idea that church churches will die if there is constant division and the crazy thing is they call in the new testament the apostles refer to our unity as spiritual unity Right? It's not just the physical unity, but the members of Jesus' body are united in the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what unites us. The reason why Satan cannot ultimately destroy and divide the church, even though the church has all these denominations and the church has gone through lots of division, is because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit keeps the body of Christ ultimately together, at least the true, genuine body of Christ. But Satan is going to try to divide. So if there's division, it is of the flesh. And if churches are truly divided, then it is not the work of the Spirit. It is the Spirit who unites. It is Satan who divides. And notice where it tells you that it's against the Holy Spirit, right? So if the true church are composed of people united by the Spirit, then these false teachers, they cause divisions. They are worldly people, meaning they're not from God. They aren't filled with the Spirit, they aren't born again, their citizenship is not in heaven, they're purely of the world, and it says they're devoid of the Spirit, meaning they don't have the, the capital S, they don't have the Holy Spirit. And so these false teachers are unbelievers, and they've come into the church looking and talking like believers, and they're trying to divide the church. So we got to watch out, right? And the best way to watch out is what? One, you need to know the Word of God, but secondly, that's where the accountability of the community comes in. Right? So if you guys actually know each other and hear each other, and if you stick around a church long enough, people will know you. If a pastor sticks around a church long enough, they will know the pastor, and they will know whether he's a false teacher or not. If a leader sticks around a church long enough, true colors come out, right? It's the same way for Christian community. And that's why it's important that you guys have community and that you guys know each other and there is fellowship, right? It's not just teach, bam, 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 and go and come back and gather and then go. Um, but the unity comes with the Spirit. So let's move to the second idea. The second idea uh, starts in verse 20. So first, we, we need to be watching out. But secondly, we need to be worshiping, right? We need to be worshiping. So first, watching out is how we contend. Second, worshiping. Worshiping is a nice way to summarize uh, this sentence here in verses 20 to 21. Notice that Jude mentions three ongoing actions. These are ongoing. Building yourselves up. It's not just go and build yourselves up once, but building yourselves up continually 
and what are you building yourselves up with? So building yourselves up is, is strengthening. So when you go to the gym, you're building up your physical body, right? Same idea. If you're studying, you're building up mental capacity or you're increasing knowledge, right? In the same way, building up yourself spiritually in the most holy faith is the same faith that was passed down from Jesus to the apostles and delivered once and for all to the saints. And this faith is the scriptures. It is the Bible. It is what is contained in the 66 books. So, yeah, this means studying theology, but not just studying theology and, and the Bible, but living. And how do you help each other live it out? Community, right? And so... You know, this is this is a community project. There's an individual building up where you're personally doing devotions and studying, but there's also accountability and spurring one another on and the, all the one another passages in uh, the New Testament. And I would call that worshiping. Romans 12, 1 and 2, it talks about having your life, your mind renewed, right? Be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. Uh, and then it talks about your spiritual life, your spiritual act of worship. And so if you're building yourself up in the Word of God, it is for a life of worship. But you combine that with prayer. So there's Bible reading and prayer, and I would call that a life of worship. right? So there's corporate worship where you're singing and hearing the Word, but how do you worship Jesus 24-7? How do you worship Jesus in your everyday life while you're, 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 you're building yourselves up in the Bible, but you're praying to God in the power of the Holy Spirit? Because the Spirit of God will help you understand the Word of God, and it will help you discern what is true and what is real, right? Well, I mean, what is true is what is real, the same thing. What is true and what is false? What is real and what is unreal, I guess, right? Praying in the Holy Spirit refers to praying in the power of the Spirit. So as people are trying to divide the church in Jude's context, he's saying pray in the power of the Holy Spirit to help you have that discernment, right? And the context here, I just have to clarify, the context specifically here is not talking about speaking in tongues. So when this is praying in the Holy Spirit, if you have questions, please ask me about that later. But it's not talking about speaking in tongues because the context is talking about false teaching. So it's talking about guarding against deception and worldly temptation. And if we pray in our own power, we'll be weak. right? We won't be able to discern because the, the false teachers and Satan, they're attacking and they're so divisive and cunning. And uh, instead, seek to pray in the power of the Spirit that guards us in the midst of warfare, right? And so that's what the context is, praying in the power of the Spirit. So, uh, third, under this worshiping, so there's building yourself up in the faith, there's praying in the Spirit, but notice it says keeping yourselves in the love of God. And what does that mean, to keep yourself? It means to stay under the promises of God's blessings. And that's also a life of worship. So if you're worshiping God, you're basically keeping yourselves under some type of authority. So as you go through life, you're, you're, you have discouragement, you're hearing things in life, you have to make decisions. What governs your mind and your heart? What governs your decisions? How do you feel about something when, when your heart is broken because, I don't know, you're in a relationship, it doesn't work out, or something like that? What do you do? Well, you have to keep yourselves under the love of God. It's not the love of this world. It's not the love of people that's going to sustain you. Love of people is important, but if you don't have the love of God, that's really what your heart longs for. If you don't have the love of God, you're not going to experience the love that God designed for you to live under. And so stay under the promises of God. That's what it means. God promises you in His Word that He loves you, that He'll walk with you, you'll persevere, but you have to trust Him. So keeping yourselves continually under the love of God versus the love of the world versus other 
affection. So God gives us His commandments. He gives us His instructions in Scripture. And we keep ourselves under the Scripture. So you're beginning to see a theme here. Right? So what does it mean to watch out? Well, you, well if you're going to watch out for what is false, you've got to know what is true. So you need the Scriptures. While you're building yourselves up in the faith, well, what faith are you building up, right? You need some building blocks. Where do you find the faith that you're building up? In the Scriptures. Praying in the Spirit. How do you know that what you're praying is truly in line with the Spirit? Well, if it matches up with the Spirit-inspired Word, then you're probably going to be praying in the Spirit and according to the guidelines of the Spirit. Okay, And then keeping yourselves under the love of God. How do you experience the love of God? God is not exactly present with you right in terms of god the father he's not here jesus is in heaven he resurrected and ascended who did he leave for us the holy spirit so the spirit of god and his presence is conveyed through the love conveys the love of god but i'm going to talk about how important the holy spirit's activity is connected to the scriptures i'll show you that through john calvin but that's so important because a lot of times people are like holy spirit yeah, but how do you know that something is of the Spirit? You can say, oh, the Spirit led me to say this to you. How do I know if it's true or false? It might be true. It might be false. I can say, hey, I really feel the Spirit moving me right now. Well, how do I confirm that that's really from the Spirit? I need something that's also inspired and of the Spirit. And that's the Word of God. Because every single word in this book is inspired by the same Holy Spirit. That same Holy Spirit is going to help you understand His Word. And it's the same Holy Spirit that's going to convert you. And it's the same Holy Spirit that's going to help you discern false teaching from true teaching. right? And, and a simple way that I always use to illustrate this, always used to illustrate this, is you have sixth graders who don't know anything about theology. They know a little bit about Bible, stories of Noah and Moses and Abraham, songs, Jesus loves me, uh, Jesus loves all the children in the world. Uh, you know, they know all that stuff, uh, but they probably don't understand some of the deeper things in Scripture. But yet they believe. And then if they get older and they continue in the faith, you see that their conversion was genuine. On the flip side, you got professors of theology at these secular universities who know the Bible left and right. They know Greek for the New Testament. They know Hebrew for the Old Testament. They know Aramaic, which is which, you know, there are parts of the scriptures in Aramaic. They know, you know, all kinds of stuff. Latin. They they can read French. You know, in German, higher scholarship. They can explain everything to you, but they don't believe in Jesus. What's the difference? How do you explain that? There's a spiritual conversion. The Holy Spirit has indwelt that 6th grader and convicted that 6th grader that Jesus is real, that He's true, and that He's Messiah. But for this other person, this expert of the Bible is just knowledge. It's not saving. See, you need the Holy Spirit. And so, so praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, how do you do that? You need the Word of God, right? right so, so that's the theme. When you combine building up, praying, and keeping... The one word that encompasses all this is worship. And how you worship, you cannot do it apart from the Word of God. Jesus said, you know, true worship is both spirit and truth, right? And so, so you have your spirit indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but you also need the truth, the Word of God. The next is there's waiting, right? So you're watching out, you're worshiping, but you're waiting. How do you contend? You need to be waiting. Why is waiting important? Because when you look around the world right now, it doesn't seem like Jesus is winning. You just open up your news 
uh, app and you're like, dude, it seems like terrorism is winning. It seems like evil's winning. Uh, it seems like the warriors are winning. You know, that's, you know, <laughs> and, and it just seems like everything that's evil in this world <laughs> is winning. It's sad. But you have to constantly look back to the promises of God in Scripture and say, you know, no, Jesus is not done with us yet. In fact, he's warned us of this world. He warned of us of these last times. And he's saying, you've got to wait. Wait, right? So look at verse 21. It says, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Christ that leads to eternal life. What does that mean? I think it's all kinds of things, right? But, but we know that waiting for the mercy, right, what does that include? That includes God's sanctification in your life because it's by His mercies that we receive salvation and eternal life. So if you're talking to someone who's already received salvation, then this is the mercy of God leading to sanctification. This can also mean waiting for glorification. When, when Jesus finally comes back or when He takes you home, when you're no longer struggling with sin. This might include when you're praying for the unbeliever. You need to, pray, you need to wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, to touch them, right? So we need to face it. The true Christianity is not welcomed in this world. And what the world needs is we need to wait for the mercy of God to capture their hearts. And we need the mercy of Christ daily in our lives. And I think this is a struggle for us. It's waiting, waiting, including me. It's, it's just this, this, this discouragement that, Jesus, when are you going to come back? When are you going to make things right? Why are things so challenging? Why is it so hard to be a Christian? And then there's a conviction. You know, the Lord says, well, Hanley, what are you crying about? Look at the persecuted Christians in the Middle East. Oh, okay. You know, I guess I'll stop complaining now and go shepherd the flock. You know, and so, so, so the Lord kind of convicts us. But there's joy in waiting for His eternal sovereign return. It's going to happen. And that's when the Lord is going to come back. He'll deal with false teaching. He'll deal with false teachers who aren't repentant. And then there's, lastly, witnessing. Right? So you have, you have watching out, worshiping, waiting, and witnessing. These four things are, what, are how we contend. And when we look at John Calvin's life, you'll see, you know, word take on flesh a little bit. Right? An application. But witnessing. Notice verses 22 and 23. First... Notice the call to demonstrate Jesus' love. It says, showing mercy. Now, what does that mean? Well, the context is talking about false teachers. And discerning against, being discerning against false, false teaching, as well as those who, are, who have been uh, swayed away from the truth by false teaching. Or those who have been lured into the teaching of the heretics and the false teaching. It says to have mercy on them. Right? It says to show mercy towards them. So notice verse 22. And have mercy on those who doubt. Doubt what? Doubt the truth. Doubt the faith. Doubt Christ. And so once again, guys, when you see people struggling in the church to believe, you need to have mercy on them. You must have mercy on unbelievers because they don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have that power yet. Pray for that mercy of the Lord to touch their hearts and the Spirit to convert them. When you see Christians struggling with sin, when you see fellow brothers and sisters in Christ struggling with discouragement and, 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 and you're like trying to, to disciple them or you're trying to speak truth in love into their lives and you're like, come on, brother, shake out of this. You can't go down this path anymore. Come on, sister. You know, I, I'm warning you and I know it doesn't feel good for me to tell you this, but if you continue in this way, 
it brings shame to Christ. And, you know, maybe don't say it that meanly, but, but come on, brother, you know, I'm with you. That idea is have mercy on them, right? Let that be done with love. And so, same thing for the unbelievers. You must lovingly witness to them concerning the truth. And when you have people who have swayed away from the faith, go after them in love and mercy. Look at verse 23. Save others. So, we know that Jesus saves. But this command is for the believers. So, I don't think this is talking about us giving salvation. But it's almost this idea of save others by snatching them out of the fire. And how do you do that? By warning them, by witnessing to them. And that's why I chose the phrase witnessing, right? So, so you're, you're, you're having to witness to them. And, and it's like you have the heart that you want to snatch them out of the fire because they're headed towards the wrong direction. And it says, to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, there's a warning here that oftentimes gets missed, right? So, so let me give you the practical illustration. When I first got saved, you know, well, I grew up in the church, but as I lived in the church, I was rebellious. You know, I, I had substance abuse and had fun with some friends and uh, I was living a certain, certain life. I was crude with my language. I was racist and, and any, any bad thing you can think about uh, that encompassed my personality, right? When Jesus changed my life, I had a set of friends then if I continued to hang out with them, I would, I would just be tempted to fall back into that lifestyle. I could not escape that lifestyle. So I had to break away from them. Okay, so I lost my closest friends that I grew up with. Right? Because I couldn't hang out with them anymore. As I grew stronger in my faith, now today I don't know if they'll hang out with me. I haven't talked to them in uh, two decades. If I went now, I could, I'm probably strong enough to talk to them and not get pulled into their lifestyle. Well, they're my age, so they have kids and you know, they probably don't do the same things anymore. So, so, so my point is sometimes you have to be discerning. You can't be chasing after people, warning them. And, and so like, let's just say you struggle with, um, I don't know, gambling. <laughs> so... So you're like, hey, I'm going to go witness to my friends and we're going to go to the casino together. I'm going to sit there with them and witness to them. That's probably not a good thing to do. Okay, they'll probably pull you in with them, right? Because you're addicted to gambling, okay? Or, or sports betting or, or whatever it is that, that, that gets you going. Uh, uh, you know, if you struggle with, with uh, over-consuming uh, alcohol and then so you're hanging out with, with, with unbelievers who over-consume and your missions to witness to them, they might just pull you in. Okay, they might just pull you in. And so, so those are things that, that he's warning. And notice what he's saying. He says, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. That's the warning. Right. And, and let me explain this picture language, hating the garment stained by flesh. This is giving us the imagery of being polluted by false teaching and worldly sin. So you would hate picking up a dirty garment stained by pollution. Right. And so I see this picture of in the movies where you have the guy and he's wearing like this whole suit, you know, and, and he's going into a room that's quarantined because someone has some crazy disease that the CDC has quarantined the person and so that medical professional going in there has to wear all this gear so that he or she doesn't 
uh, doesn't receive or contract that disease. And, and it's, it's saying that sin is that contagious. Sin is that dangerous. And so you have to hate sin that much. So you have to have the balance of loving the sinner and reaching out for them, but you need to have discernment of when, when you go in there, if you love their sin too much, you're going to jump right in the, with them. And so that's the picture language that it's painting, that there's a garment stained by the flesh. You wouldn't want to touch it. It's going to pollute you. It's going to corrupt you. It's going to poison you. It's going to lead you astray and false teaching will lead to damnation. And so you want to stay away from those who have been polluted by this false doctrine. That's how poisonous it is, but not before trying to witness to them. And sometimes that means sending someone off to witness to them, right? And so that's the context and the idea there. And that's point number one tonight. So we contend for the truth by watching out, worshiping, waiting, and witnessing for Christ. Now for point number two, I want to... Uh, use the life of John Calvin. Now, I was studying for this uh, with as much time as I had, and uh, there, there was too much information. I mean, I just, I almost want to print out Wikipedia and read the whole thing to you, because you've got to know his life and the whole thing, and maybe this turns into another sermon somewhere. Uh, but I think just to keep us under, uh, you know, a reasonable time frame for tonight. Uh, I want to emphasize two points, two things. In John Calvin's life, you see someone who contended for the faith, his whole life contending for the faith. But the thing is, he didn't always want to contend for the faith. He wanted to just study a lot of times. He just wanted to go into a cave and write. But the Lord always thrusted him out onto the public platform to defend the Protestant Reformation and to defend the biblical truth against the Roman Catholic Church. And at that time, um, there was a lot of corruption and false teaching. So John Calvin, he had a life driven by doctrine and doxology. I will define those terms for you. But what's important to know about him is that doxology refers to a formula of praise to God. And throughout church history, God has gifted us with individuals who have helped us to guard against false teaching so that we can have the privilege and the honor of knowing who to worship what we're worshiping, right, in terms of, you know, how the Bible describes the Christian faith. And, 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 and so we understand doxology, meaning we have a formula of praise in sound doctrine, right? We have a, a formula of right theology because of men that, that God has gifted to the church like John Calvin, and his life was driven by doxology, Right, by doctrine and doxology. So doctrine refers to a set of beliefs and doxology refers to a formula of praise of God and you need both. You need a right set of beliefs that will then lead you to the right formula of praise. And you need a right formula of praise to add fuel to doctrine. Doctrine alone is just dead words in a page. You understand that? Someone can give you the Bible and if you don't have the fire of the Holy Spirit, it's just words, just like those theologian professors that don't believe in Jesus and aren't converted. But if you just have fire in your heart and emotions and there's no truth to gird or to guide or to frame your thoughts, you'll just be worshiping left and right. You won't even know what's true or what you feel. You'll be like, was that God? I don't know. Maybe. Someone hit me in the head and I'll fall down. You know, and, and maybe, maybe that was God. But nowhere in the scriptures does it talk about hitting people on the head and they fall down. Nowhere. Nowhere does it talk about holy laughter or holy barfing. You know, but where do churches get this idea from? 
right? And so, so there needs to be a right direction of the mind and the love and the affections of the heart. And so you need doctrine to ground your emotions and your heart. You need to know who you're worshiping and, and what that God has done for us. Why are we worshiping Jesus Christ? And then you need fire, man. You need fuel. You need fuel, and that's the Spirit of God, and you need both. Well, that's what I want you to see tonight, right? The fuel leads to the formula of praise, and God's given us Calvin to help us do this. At the age of 20, he was converted. And that was around the year 1529. Calvin was converted to Christ, and this began a lifelong commitment to writing and teaching to defend the glory of God. So the first thing I want you to see, and then he, he published his first edition of the Institutes, that big book that he's famous for, the Institutes of Christian Religion. He was 27. So he was a young adult, right? Young adult making a crazy impact. But the first thing I want you to see, that it was the internal witness of the Holy Spirit that revealed the mercy of God to Calvin. And here's the applicational understanding for us. Doctrinal conviction, where does it begin? It begins with the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. How important is the Holy Spirit? Very important. So if, you, if you've only been to a Baptist church all your life, and you've been tempted to think that the Trinity is the Father, Son, and the Bible, let me tell you that the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and you have the Holy Spirit living in you, and the Trinity is actually the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And so doctrinal conviction begins with this internal witness of the Holy Spirit. You must believe and know and be reminded daily that the Spirit of God lives in you. And notice what, what, what Calvin says. He explains this in one of his essays. And, and so when I read stuff from him, obviously it's translated. He was French. He's the greatest thing that ever came out of France. You know, he's a great... I, I say that because, you know, I'm... You know, you know, I'm American, and I know, like, you know, French, the, politically, they don't like us and stuff. So, so I'm like, eh, you know. Uh, and, you know, England is like our grandfather kind of thing. So then, you know, whatever, my feelings towards France. But the greatest thing that ever come out of France are, are not, like, chocolate eclairs. I don't know if that came out of France. But John Calvin was the greatest thing that came, ever came out of France. Quote me on that, right? And so, well, don't quote me on it. I'm getting in trouble. But, but the Spirit awakens us, right? Look at how he writes. Look at this. The Spirit awakens us as from the dead to see and to taste the divine reality of God in Scripture, which authenticates it as God's own word. Now, let me translate that for you. Okay, so he's saying that the Holy Spirit wakes you up from the dead, from being spiritually dead, to actually see God, so you can actually see in your eyes what the world cannot see, that Jesus Christ is really the Messiah. And you can taste the divine reality that you're like, I don't know, God hasn't audibly spoken to me. He's not in front of me, but I believe that He's real and He's true and something's moving me and convicting me to sing and worship and to do this again and again and again. And even though the world keeps telling me that God is false and even though I'm lonely or discouraged or whatever it is in life, I keep going back to God. I might backslide for a little bit. I might feel dry for a little bit, but something keeps dragging me back to God. I don't know what it is. Guess what? It's the Holy Spirit, right? And which authenticates it is God's own word, and it's the scriptures. So he's saying the divine reality shows up. So it's almost like 
I'm not even kidding. You know, I used to make the joke, you know, before you, people didn't have, when I was youth pastor, some of you guys were youth and they didn't have smartphones. Right? It's the flip phone or the Nokia and, and it doesn't have color. And I would, and they would say, Hanley, it's dark. Turn on the parking lights. And I would say, open your Bible. And I said, open your Bible. This is the light. Open your Bibles. And you guys would do it and no light would come out. Right? But you would do it. I mean, just that's the idea is that you open but now I say open your Bible you just open your phone and there's actually a light so I stopped using the joke because it's no longer a joke it's for real but open the Bible and God comes alive because he speaks dead men do not speak they don't have a soul they don't have thoughts they cannot communicate they are dead dead men cannot speak is that Pirates of the Caribbean? alright but I actually like that, that movie series. But dead men cannot speak. But Jesus is not dead. He's resurrected. And God is alive. And He speaks through His Word. He spoke all things into creation through His Word. And so the Spirit of God uses the inspired Word to convert our souls through inward persuasion. And that's what saves us. But you read stuff like this. I'm tempted at times, instead of doing my devotions in the Bible, to do it in the institutes of Christian religion, which I have to confess that at times I've done and repented of. I know you can't see all of this, but just try to understand John Piper. You're like, Piper, he writes really well. Sometimes he's confusing, but Piper probably writes like Calvin. Okay, And all their names are John. But look at John. John Piper, he writes of Calvin's conversion. He says, in his early 20s, John Calvin experienced the miracle of having the blind eye of his spirit, meaning his soul, opened by the capital S, Spirit of God. And what he saw immediately and without any intervening chain of human reasoning. So like before the free will can get in there and say, hey, maybe the Bible's not true. Maybe it's just myths. Myths. You know, maybe Jesus was just a man. Before the world could get in there, the intervening chain of human reasoning, Piper, you write like a poet, were two things. So interwoven that they would determine the rest of his life. And what are the two things? The majesty of God and the Word of God. And they're interrelated, right? The Word mediated the majesty and the majesty vindicated the Word. That is That's poetic, man. He just dropped, he just dropped the bomb right there. You, you look at that, right? The Word mediated the majesty. So the Word tells you how glorious God is, how holy God is, how loving He is, how, you know, how merciful He is, and, and, and how awesome God is in the Word. And when you read it and you believe it, and when it touches your heart, you feel the majesty of God and it vindicates it as true. Right? So that's what I'm saying, that you hand the Bible to some people and they're like, what is this? It's just an ancient book. They put it away. And you hand it to a believer. Right? Especially if you, if, you, if you go to countries where they don't have the Bible because it's not allowed. I mean, why do you think people would give their lives to translate the Bible? Because it's that powerful. Right? It's that powerful to translate it into a language that doesn't exist, that the, the translation doesn't yet exist, to give people life. Right? And then I continue reading what Piper says. He says, the word mediated the majesty and the majesty vindicated the word. Henceforth, he would be a man, Calvin, utterly devoted to displaying the majesty of God by the exposition, exposition of the word of God. So when your life is captured, the more you see the majesty explained, the more the Holy Spirit tells you that is real, God comes alive, the more you want to unleash it. And the more you want to proclaim it, preach it, 
write about it, live it. And that's why Calvin was an expository preacher. Just look at his commentaries. You look at his sermons. He went verse by verse through books because he could not get away from the Word of God. Here's how J.I. Packer writes, uh, writes, puts it. The internal witness of the Spirit in John Calvin is a work of enlightenment whereby through the medium of verbal testimony, the blind eyes of the Spirit are open and divine realities come to be recognized and embraced for what they are. The recognition, Calvin says, is as immediate and unanalyzable as the perceiving of color or a taste or a physical sense. It's crazy, right? And uh, an event about which no more can be said than that when when appropriate stimuli is really nerdy, were present, it happened, and when it happened, we know it happened. Right? So meaning, when you read the Bible and you believe that it's true, you can't even explain it. It just happened. So when people say, hey, how'd you get saved? I don't know. It just happened. What led you to believe? I woke up. You know, Jesus, it was a miracle. Why do you still believe? Something in here keeps telling me this is true. And so that's from his collection of essays, John Calvin, a collection of essays, right? So, so that's J.I. Packer explaining it. And so Piper explains that for Calvin, the witness of God to Scripture is the immediate, and, and this is what we read, the immediate, unassailable, life-giving revelation to the mind of the majesty of God manifest in the Scriptures themselves. So his conviction, where did it start? The Scriptures. What's empowering it? His understanding and his reading and his interpretation, his writing, his delivery of the scriptures, the Holy Spirit. And even if you have the Holy Spirit, you, I wish I could give you more of Calvin's life. He was often discouraged. He was often sick. Uh, at the end of his life, his body was falling apart. You know, he faced a lot of persecution. So it wasn't like this guy had the most, the happiest life. But he had the power of the Spirit that helped him to keep contending. And that's the Christian life. It's a battle. Right, So that's the first thing is doctrinal conviction. Where does it begin? It begins with this internal witness of the Holy Spirit, but it works in line with Scripture. Okay, The second thing is doxological living. That's basically um, Christian living or, or, or a life of worship. Okay? A life of worship is fueled by zeal for the glory of God. But you need the first one, doctrine, to fuel, to fuel the zeal. Right, So you look at it, in 1536... At the age of 27, so he's a young adult now. So at 20, he was a, you know, um, you know and, and by the way, he studied to be a lawyer. He was studying to be an attorney, very sharp. Uh, he still got his legal degree, he, or whatever it was equivalent to back then in France, you know. Um, that, and I guess for him, a French attorney, you just surrender everything, right? He's just like, I, <laughs> I lose. No, I'm just kidding. I'm telling you guys political jokes here. But... <laughs> But <laughs> doxological living is fueled by the zeal for the glory of God. And at age 27, this zeal led him to publish his first edition of the Institutes, which would, would develop and be refined over the course of his life. So he took what he understood in the Word of God, and he, he made basically a systematic theology book. Meaning he, he went through the scriptures and he says, this is what the Bible teaches about the Trinity about the Holy Spirit, about the doctrine of Scripture, and, and, and it, it comes out to a systematic theology. And so when you read his commentaries, right, so when he has commentaries, you have his verse-by-verse -verse exposition, you read his sermons, you get the applicational side, and you have his institutes, 
you have a trinity of devotional work for all of your life. And just don't throw your Bible away. And you can live an entire life on Calvin. And it's like it's like soup plantation, man. Um, well, I like soup plantation, but it, it's like all you can eat, okay? So, age of 27, he published his first volume of the Institutes. Two years later, in 1538, there was a key event that happened in Calvin's life. In 1538, an Italian cardinal, not a bird, but like a religious uh, character, uh, named, I don't want to butcher his name, he's Italiano, you know, is Jack. Jacopo Sarletto. This sounds like the Godfather, right? Like he's gonna come out and you come to my daughter's wedding, you kiss me on the hand, you don't call me Godfather. You know, it's like Jacopo Sarletto <laughs> wrote a letter to Geneva City Council, and in this letter, this guy's name sounds like a salad, right? So he says Sarletto was exhorting Geneva to return to the Roman Catholic faith. And the city council, who was Protestant at that time in Geneva, they were like, dude, man, this guy, this Roman Catholic cardinal, um, you know, he's, he's writing this letter to us with all these theological arguments, and he's quoting all this scripture, and, and, and he's trying to drive us back to Roman Catholicism, and we are not learned in theology. We need someone to defend us. How do we defend the Protestant belief or the Protestant gospel of salvation, in Christ alone, by faith alone, through His grace alone, you know, um, sola scriptura, all of that. And so Calvin is 29 years old, and that's who they chose. So at 29 years old, they chose Calvin to write this response to Sotoleto. And in eight days, eight days, he produces this document. And this was one of his earliest writings that spread across Europe, bringing Calvin to the table of the Protestant Reformation as a theologian to be reckoned with. It was that letter and response that he wrote, and, and I don't have the slide on this one for you, but Piper explains that when Martin Luther, who's much older than him at this point, at least 20, something year, 20 or 27 years older than him at this point, when Martin Luther read it, Luther said, Here is a writing which has hands and feet. I rejoice that God raises up such men. And so Luther respected this young Calvin. Piper writes, and I have this on the slide for you, that Calvin's response to Sedoletto is important because it uncovers the root of Calvin's quarrel, meaning his main issue with Rome, that will determine his whole life, as well as the shape of this lecture. The issue is not, first, justification or priestly abuses or transubstantiation, that's a something to do with the, the, the communion, or prayers to saints or papal authority, all those will come in for discussion. But beneath all of them, the fundamental issue for John Calvin from the beginning to the end of his life was this, was the issue of the centrality and supremacy and majesty of the glory of God. And where was that majesty? It was the Word of God. So Calvin was saying, uh-uh, I'm going to argue back for right interpretation of Scripture. And here's what he wrote. Here's part of what Calvin wrote to uh, Sotoleto, okay? In his response, he says, Your zeal for heavenly life is a zeal. So the Roman Catholic, whatever teaching, zeal for heavenly life is a zeal which keeps a man entirely devoted to himself, meaning it's self-centered. It's works-based. It's works 
and does not even by one expression arouse him to sanctify the name of God. So basically Calvin's saying the Roman Catholic faith that is espoused by Sadoleto is self-centered and man is at the center of his own pursuit of salvation. And that's what Roman Catholicism taught, salvation by works. Later on in the same letter, Calvin tells Sadoleto to instead, here's what you ought to do, set before man as the prime motive of his existence, zeal, so passion, to illustrate the glory of God. And that's from John Calvin, a selection from his writings. And so Calvin, what drove him was not the doctrine of elections. A lot of people think, oh yeah, it's all about the doctrine of predestination. I mean, that was important to him. It was his interpretation of the scriptures. You know, it, it's not even the doctrine of the Trinity or his doctrine of knowledge. It was, it was the glory of God that drove him to write all those things. And so this example shows that how from the very beginning Calvin was used by God to defend not his own glory, but the glory of the scriptures. Because if he's defending the majesty of God, he's defending the one thing where the majesty of God came alive to him, which is contending for biblical truth. His writings and teachings were a means of warning and guarding. Right? B.B. Warfield wrote this. I don't know if I have this slide. Okay. B.B. Warfield, uh, Benjamin Warfield, he wrote, No man ever had a profounder sense of God than he. And so, the way that you and I warn and guard against false teaching, and, and there's something practical, is that we're not all called to be little John Calvins, right? And to go pick fights and, and go attack the Catholic Church or anything like that. You shouldn't do that. But what you need to do is guard the doctrine in your own life. And so what this looks like is you getting zeal for opening your Bible every day or every other day or meditating on Scripture, looking at it, praying to God, cherishing your Bibles, bringing your Bibles in some form to church. And like I said last week, opening up, following along as the text is explained, looking for application to your own life because the pastor is not going to be able to give application that hits every person, right? And also to know if the pastor is actually preaching the Word of God or not. Uh, and wherever you go to church, whatever you listen to on the radio. And then look at, look at the scriptures. Look at the life of the person delivering the scriptures. right? And, and no preacher or pastor is going to be perfect. But you try to look at who is true and who is false. And the Holy Spirit will help you do that. But the more you study the scriptures, you get built up. Because the Holy Spirit is building you up through His inspired word. It's truth. Otherwise... It, everything is just feelings. How do you know actually something is from the Spirit? It has to be from the Scriptures. Okay? One more popular account uh, of Calvin's life, and I'll wrap it up. This one's often told of Calvin. It's a story of him throwing his body over the communion table to guard the Lord's Supper from being defiled. I, I've never uh, mustered enough courage to do this. I don't think we need to, but I've been tempted to. But the closest thing I say is the Lord's Supper is for baptized believers. Right? don't have to be a member of FCBC One, but it's for baptized believers. Um, you don't want an unbeliever taking the Lord's Supper because there's something sacred about it because of what the Lord's Supper symbolizes. It symbolizes your, your, your union with Christ, right? When you take that, that you are remembering His death and resurrection and you're partaking in His body, not His literal body, uh, but it, it symbolizes your union and your membership to the body of Christ. So, Baptism is that obedience that brings you in to the Lord's body, and so then you, you partake by taking the Lord's body symbolically. Okay, so throughout Calvin's ministry, 
he had to battle against the Libertines. This isn't a basketball team from New York, but the Libertines uh, in Geneva, they are people who claim to be Christians. But just like in Jude's day, where last week we saw, or the last time we were together, we saw that there were false teachers who uh, were driven by sexual immorality and sensuality. These libertines, they they say they believe in Jesus, so they, so they say, hey, Jesus paid for our sins, therefore they have a license, they have liberty to sin. It's like, well, Jesus died for our sins anyway, once and for all, so even if we sin, he's going to forgive us, so why don't we just keep on sinning? And we know that Jesus does forgive sin, but there's nothing that can be further from the truth. Just, just this constant abuse of the grace of God in such a gross and public way, you know, it, it, it surely reveals that a person doesn't really have Christ. And so there's this famous story of Calvin and the Lord's Supper, right, of communion. So for the Libertines, the communion of the saints, that's the phrase, communion of the saints to them, it meant common possession of goods, houses, bodies, and wives. So they would use this whole idea that, hey, we're one body in Christ, we're all united, so your wife is my wife, right, and, and, and that type of thing. And they would encourage sexual immorality and sexual promiscuity in the name of Christian freedom. And at the same time, they claimed the right to take the Lord's Supper. And so Calvin isn't having it. Right? He isn't having it. So this crisis of communion came to head in 1553. So at this point, Calvin's 44 years old. 44 years old. And a well-to-do libertine, meaning he's, he's wealthy and he has a great reputation in his name, uh, is sounds like a dog, but it's Berthelier or something like that. Berthelier uh, was forbidden by uh, he was forbidden by the council of the church to partake in the Lord's Supper. So this guy Berthelier, he's like, okay, the church won't let me take the Lord's Supper. I am going to appeal to the city council, and the council of the city they overturned the church's ruling. They're like, hey, you know this Libertine guy, he's allowed. You must allow him to take the Lord's Supper, and this created a crisis for Calvin. How could he allow the Lord's Supper to be defiled by such a blatant and gross libertine? So the day of battle came. The libertines were present to eat the Lord's Supper. It was a critical moment for the Reformed faith in Geneva. So there's Calvin. He's, a, he's administering the Lord's Supper. He saw these libertines approaching, coming forward to take the sacred bread. And so what Calvin did is he flung his arms around the sacramental vessels, as if to protect them from sacrilege. And while his, while his voice rang out through the building, and this is what he said, and it's translated, of course, but these hands you may crush, these arms you may lop off, my life you may take, my blood is yours, you may shed it, but you shall never force me to give holy things to the profane and dishonor the table of my God. That was his zeal for the defending the glory of God. And after this, Theodore Beza, he was a reformer, but he was Calvin's first biographer, he wrote this, The sacred ordinance was celebrated with profound silence and utter solemn awe in all present, as if the deity himself had been visible among them. So because Calvin took a stand from that day forward in Geneva, the Lord's Supper was taken with reverence and holiness as if God was actually sitting there, present. And so the big idea, once again, is contend for the truth by watching out, worshiping, waiting, and witnessing for Christ. Ran out of time in application, so I didn't get a chance to prepare it as much as I wanted to, but I know it's late anyway. But here are your 
of open-ended discussion questions. How can you grow in your passion for the doctrines of Scripture? And for each of you, it's going to be different. You know, a lot of you guys have a lot of knowledge. Maybe you read a lot. Maybe it's time to, to apply it. So how can you apply it? For some of you, you're like, I don't know enough Bible. It's never too late to start. You shouldn't feel like you're behind. Just dig into it. it the majesty will come alive and it will grow your affections. Or how can you stay, take a stand for biblical truth in your family, community, workplace, school, relationships, lifestyle, church, similar to last time? Only last time it was where can you take a stand? This is how. What can you actually do to take a stand for the scriptures and for your life? Okay? So let me pray for us and then um, you can go to discussion group. Father, we are grateful for the warnings in scripture and for giving us the Bible, Lord, that we actually have so many translations. And thank you for the ESV. Uh, but Lord, we, we're grateful for all the good translations that we have where we can understand your word. And you've given us so many online tools and good ones too where we can help to interpret it, Lord, that helps us interpret it. Help us grow in our zeal for living for your glory by making your words come alive. Will your majesty just burst out of the words of the pages of scripture so that it captures our lives and gives us guidance to look to you, to worship you, to think upon your promises, Lord. Lord, help us to cherish your word. So be with, be with uh, the young adults now as, as, as they all go into their discussion groups to discuss your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.